The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambutasa. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambutasa. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambutasa. Bhutang damang sankang namasami. As I said uh, in the beginning, today to, uh, is the birthday of Ajahn Chah, who was the founder of the lineage that both of us have been training in, in England. And this is a big photo of him. He was a meditation master in the Thai forest tradition and he has passed away in 1992. That was when I joined the monastery actually in England. I had been in Thailand before and came, came to England in 1992 in October and, and Ajahn Chah passed away um, just, I think, at the end of that year. So I have never met Ajahn Chah because my first teacher was, was a contemporary of Ajahn Chah, Ajahn Buddha Dasa, but there was kind of a day's journey between the monasteries. My first teacher was in the south of Thailand, and Ajahn Chah had a monastery in the northeast of Thailand, in uh, what's called Isan. It's, uh, it's the area um, of Thailand which borders onto Laos and Cambodia, and it's, you know, it's quite a poor area, rural area. There's not much tourism or anything going on there. Mainly rice fields upon rice fields, basically. And lots of farmers. And uh, when Ajahn Chah was born in 1919, and he was born into a, into a farmer family uh, with several children. I don't know how many. But when he was nine years old, he, he voluntarily wanted to go to live in a monastery as a, as a temple boy, which is the usual way, you know, what families did and still do in Thailand, families who don't have much money and who can't maybe afford, you know, to educate all of the children. They, the boys have the option they can go to the monastery and be temple boys and, or become novices, and so they get an education for girls. The option is to go into prostitution. <laughs> it's a, quite a big difference, actually. And it's still the same in Thailand today. And I, I'm very glad, you know, to be part of a, of a project where we try to set up a training monastery for nuns. And it would be good if that would be uh, you know, more available for girls also in, in Asia. Because that was a real option, you know, and it still is today, where children can get an education if they normally, sometimes the parents can't even afford, you know, to pay the, the fee for the school uniform and, and, and the books. Even that is too much, you know. Or they can't even afford to send the uh, children to school because they have to help in the house and they have to help in the fields. And if they don't help, it's not enough food. So it's, for us, Hard to imagine, you know, what some people have to go through. So Ajahn Chah was fortunate enough, he had an education. And then uh, after, you know, some time he, he decided to stay on in the monastery. And then he took the higher ordination with uh, 20 years old. I think you can get the big ordination. And he, you know, studied some of the um, traditional Pali studies and, and the scriptures and so on, but he got increasingly you know, more um, frustrated with, with the situation you know, in the monastery where there was all about kind of um, books and, you know, and providing um, services in terms of rituals and, and, and different things. And there was no, not much attention on meditation and on Real uh, cultivating the mind and also, you know, paying attention to the 
code of discipline. So there was quite a lax discipline in this monastery and he felt like he wanted to know more about the uh, essence of the Buddha's teaching. So at one point he left the monastery and he started to wander around uh, you know, seeking out different teachers. And, and the northeast of Thailand was quite well known for uh, you know, the, st- the beginnings of what's called today the Thai forest tradition, where you know, some of the monks who were kind of disappointed with the state of practice in the, in the monasteries in the towns, they, they just you know, wanted to go back to a more of a simple lifestyle and uh, you know they really wanted to take the monastic discipline more seriously again so they put some effort into studying the what's called the vinaya the code of discipline for the monks and they were going to live very simply in the forest and you know spend a lot of time in meditation and and not you know, taking on too many duties and uh, traveling from teacher to teacher. And this is what Achan Chah also did for several years after he left the monastery where he had trained originally. And um, he was, you know, going to find Achan Man, who was the most famous forest master at that time. And he had a very formative impact on too many of the contemporaries of Achan Chah. For example, Achan Mahabua, maybe some of you have heard about him. He just died, a, died just a few months ago, actually. So he was the last one of this um, generation of forest masters. And my first teacher was also of the, uh, one of these um, forest masters, but he lived in the south, as I said before. And Achen Chas, he just spent three days with Achen Man. This is a very short time, but that was the turning point in his practice. You know, when he had some of his, um, you know, doubts were clarified by, by having an opportunity to speak with Achen Man and learn from him. And after that, he, he went back, you know, wandering in the forest and then in you know, 1954, when he was 48, he was invited by his by the village where, we, where he was born to just settle down there in the forest and start to set up a, a, a monastery. Actually, he didn't do that, but the people, you know, set it up around him. And the monastery is called Wat Nong Papong. It's um, in Ubon Ratchatane in Isan in, in Thailand, and I, I've stayed there with the nuns, this was 1996, 97. And meanwhile, it was a, a very, very big monastery. And uh, today it has over 200 branches in Thailand and also around, around the world in different you know, Western countries like England, Italy, Switzerland, America, New Zealand. Yeah, I think that's the that's the places, and so Ajahn Chah he just you know started very simply by uh, you know putting a lot of effort into trying to understand the workings of the mind, and then because he was not stopping, you know, he ended up with uh, having a big impact on many people, and his his style of practice and teaching has obviously had a big effect on too many people. And uh, the both of us, we have trained in, in uh, Amaravati Chitras monasteries, which are monasteries founded by Ajahn Sumedho, who was the first Western disciple of Ajahn Chah. Because Ajahn Chah had a very um, special talent, you know, to speak to the psyches of, um, of Westerners. And I think it was in about in the early 70s that the first Western, or, or was it the 60s? Anyhow, I'm not quite sure now. That first Westerners came to, to him. I think it was the 60s, actually. 
And Archon Sumedha was the first American you know, who turned up at the monastery and stayed there. And Jack Hornfield, you know, the, who is the founder of Spirit Rock, he was also a monk with Archon Cha for a few years. And many other Westerners. And after some time, like I think in the in the after ten years or so, he he asked Archon Sumedha to to start to set up a training monastery for Western monks, which was just like about is like seven kilometers away from the monastery, because he saw that Westerners do need a different training than Thais, and that was the founding of Wat Panana Chat. And then I think shortly after that, he came for the first time to the West, together with Archon Sumedo. He, he traveled twice to uh, England and also to North America. And I think Archon Chad taught at IMS in Massachusetts, the center which was founded by Ch- um, Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzburg. And... Just, you know, mention a little bit what's, what's uh, special about Archon Cha's teaching. I think what was very special about the way he was teaching is that he used a community and the experience in community as, as a tool uh, for getting to know yourself. Basically, you know, living together in a group, uh, of course, you know, brings up a lot of issues for people and... And just by bearing with those issues and, and you know, considering them as, as, as tools to get to know yourself, that was one of the main characteristics how he, how he trained people. And it's still going on today, and this is what we have experienced in England as well. And it can be sometimes quite... Um, frustrating and aggravating and all other, you know, afflictive emotions get stirred up by living together in a monastery and having very little distraction and, you know, no place to go because, you know, the the monastic discipline is kept pretty uh, uh, kind of clearly and so there's very little escape and the only way, you know, to really um, deal with this is, is to open to it and, and let it work through. And that can produce a lot of wisdom and compassion if one doesn't stop too early, you know, if one doesn't just, uh, you know, project out the energy which is, you know, sometimes felt very unpleasantly in the body. Anger or frustration, jealousy, all the different afflictive emotions. You know, if we, if we can hold it in the body and not let it out through the mouth or through all the other, you know, actions we can do, or if we can contain the energy, then it, it can be a very powerful uh, transformation. And I think, you know, the whole style of his teaching was very much geared towards, you know, learning exactly that skill, you know. Using uh, community life as a, as, a, as a container for transformation to occur. And the whole setup in the monastery is, is just like that, to, to support you know, the looking inside and not always, you know, blaming things which are happening to blame it on, on the outside, but really become very clear about the fact that everything, you know, what we are experiencing is a reflection of our own mind. And that is, in the beginning, you know, we hear that and, and, we say, you know, okay, the, the way out is, is here. And it, it kind of, uh, you know, if we, in the beginning we started, uh, intele- we, we understand it intellectually, and, you know, when the emotions run really high, we, can't, we forget it, of course, because we get identified and 
and you know quite sometimes we are not able to to live up to that but then you know we can at least we can maybe reflect on it afterwards and and maybe then the next time you know we can catch ourselves just before we um, you know try to find a momentary relief by letting out the, our pain through our speech for example or through our you know body language but through through training you know training ourselves in mindfulness through the meditation which we were just doing before you know through coming back to the object of the meditation again and again through the body breathing whenever you know we get hijacked into a habitual thought patterns if we if we you know succeed in uh, in uh, persevering and coming back to the object again and again we we can't help but we develop a certain amount of um, mindfulness which you know will help us when we when strong emotions arise in, in daily life and this is really you know what the reason is why we are practicing is to develop mindfulness which can help us in our daily interactions you know to be more kind and more compassionate more um, calm because if you know if our meditation practice doesn't have any um, beneficial effect on our daily lives then it's kind of a waste of time because that's why we are doing it you know in order to have more um, skillful relationships and to bring more compassion and wisdom in our daily lives that's why we are meditating it's not not just you know to have a, a blissful meditation or to you know have a strong concentration and shut out all of our thoughts it's much more the way how archan chavos teaching is in the way how you know it's i have been trained and how how i have benefited from it is it that the meditation is is a, is a tool to develop a, a strong container so when afflictive emotions arise we can hold them in the container and we can look at them and we can see what is happening with increasing uh, depths and with increasing clarity and through that increasing depth and clarity we develop increasing wisdom and compassion and we have increasingly more you know ability to choose how we are you know dealing with what's happening if we speak on this or if we speak later or if we eat this or if we don't we 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 become the master of our minds and we have increasingly more freedom and space around what is arising and you know other people will notice this as well and they will will have a beneficial effect on others as well so if we have more space within our own minds that translates also very well you know into our environment family environment work environment so it's not only it's not a selfish way of uh, spending one's time but it's a very good investment you know for the bigger picture it's and it's it, it can be also very inspiring for other people you know to get interested in in cultivating their minds and you know one of the the sayings of Ajahn Chah which have been often mentioned in the, in the monastery was the following he was saying you know if you let go a little you have a little peace and if you let go a lot you have a lot of peace and if you let go completely you have complete peace so you know uh, seeing very clearly that the uh, peace and um, spaciousness you know comes not from trying to kind of control our mind or control our environment or control other people or even to control ourselves but it it's coming rather from uh, cultivating space around experience by 
really looking deeply into the mind and starting to you know, see with increasing clarity what's really happening there. It's like, you know, when a, a lake is, is uh, very agitated because there's a lot of wind blowing over the water, then we can't really see into the depths of the lake. And also, the, you know, things around the lake, the mountains or trees, we can't see the reflection in the water. But if we give it enough time, there's, we don't have to do anything. Just, you know, keep on looking and letting it uh, settle. Like also like a, a glass of muddy water. You know, if we stop stirring the water, it just settles by itself. That's just a law of nature. We don't have to push it in any way. You know, and this was, the, I think, the fundamental insight you know, which Ajahn Chah had when he met Ajahn Man because it was the at that meeting, it was clarified for him, you know, that there is that the mind and the mind states are not the same. So, like awareness, you know, the, the true nature of the mind, that which knows what is arising in the mind, is different from what is arising. In the sense that, you know, the sky and the clouds, as I said before, essentially they are not different because, you know, the clouds and the sky are not different, but they are different formations. The sky is, is always there, even if it's completely cramped with clouds. And when the clouds are, are dissolving again, the sky is clear. And that's, you know, that's the difference between the awareness and, and what is arising in awareness. For example, you know, thoughts of greed, thoughts of hatred, jealousy, uh, you name it, all those different thoughts and mindsets which can arise, they can be known. And when I was, you know, before giving you guidance in meditation, I was saying, you know, opening the mind by listening to the silence, that's a way of, of connecting with that awareness, the true nature of the mind opening up, and then whatever is arising, you know, the sound of the train passing by, is like a cloud moving through the sky. You don't have to make it come or go. It comes and goes by itself. It arises and ceases. And then, you know, habitually the mind starts to hold on to it, just grasps it and contracts around it, and then says, oh, this is a train, and, you know, and then starting to spin up a whole story about trains, for example. But we can also just stay with the openness of the mind and let the train, the sound of the train, just come through and just stay open by listening, resting in awareness and letting everything arising and ceasing in its own time. without getting, you know, kind of drawn into the story which is triggered by the sound. For example, you know, if you are very interested in trains, you might just think, oh, kind of what of a kind of train is that? And I've seen a train like this and so on and so forth. So this is a very simple example. And, but there can be, you know, very powerful triggers can, you know, arise in the mind where it's not so easy to just let go. But in the meditation session, that's, that's uh, you know, that's at the very beginnings of, of starting to understand the structure, how the mind works, you know. Not being completely identified with the content, but it's like taking a bird's eye view onto the mind and, and starting to, to see the process, you know, the, the structure, that everything which arising is ceasing and, and to really know that deeply is, can help you to, to really um, cut permanently through, through certain patterns in the mind. So, you know, to understand it intellectually is, is a very good beginning, but then, you know, you have to check it out through observing what's happening in your mind, to really, really know that deeply.
is, you know, is a way how we can uh, permanently cut some of, of the uh, fetters, you know, which keep us bound to being reborn again and again. Because, you know, this is one of the three characteristics of life which the Buddha was speaking about, uh, and it's called impermanence, I'm sure you've heard that, or anicca in the Pali language. And Achan Chah was speaking about that a lot, but he spoke about it, he didn't call it impermanence, he mostly called it uncertainty. He always said, you know, everything is uncertain. In Thai, that means, you know, maine, he was, he was mentioning that a lot, saying, you know, everything is uncertain. And because, you know, our minds are kind of addicted to certainty in the midst of this uncertainty, the mind is constantly trying, you know, to throw up thoughts, you know, and to grasp those thoughts to give us this kind of uh, illusion of certainty in the midst of uncertainty. And, and the meditation is, is, a, is a technology, you know, to make us acquainted with the uncertainty of... Uh, the present moment, because it's constantly changing, and this is something which, you know, can be uh, very threatening. You know, if we if we're very attached to our ego and these stories, or, or we can see it as a as a, a tremendous freedom. And and the meditation is a technology, you know, to recondition the mind to see things as they truly are, and to not try to, you know, find ground under our feet, which, which, you know, is, which is very unrealistic. Because, you know, everything is constantly changing, everything is uncertain, and, and you know, all of the stories and attachments our ego, you know, comes up with are kind of frantic projects, you know, to... Uh, to create certainty in, in the midst of, of uncertainty. And this is why Arjun Chah was saying, you know, if you let go a lot, you have a lot of peace. Because, you know, if you can make friends with the uncertainty and see it as a, as a freedom, you know, and get used to it by acquainting yourself with it through medita- meditating, then it, it can open up into a into a new kind of uh, living in the world, really. And Ajahn Chah was speaking about that a lot in his, in his teachings. So, you know, he, he started as a, as a person who had a lot of... Um, perseverance and a lot of integrity how he was practicing and and through you know a, a single person who was kind of wandering around in the jungle and you know meditating and and really living to the best of his abilities the way how he understood the teaching it had a huge impact onto so many people and it has helped a lot of people and you know, at the, I think at his funeral at the end of his life, when he, the funeral was 1993. I think there's over a million people came to his funeral, and he was just a little farm farming boy, you know, from the northeast of Thailand. So it's amazing, you know. If we, I mean, I don't think it will happen to us as well, but I just mean, you know, he was a, a little boy who who really uh, was putting effort into, into you know, training his mind. And he had a tremendous effect on, on lots of people. So I think that makes it very clear how powerful the teaching is. Of course, you know, it, it also depends on our, what we would call karma, you know, in, in um, Buddhist jargon, on our past cultivation also. But it's, it's a very, very powerful teaching. And, but it depends very much on you know, what we're doing with it. You know, if we are really making an effort and putting it into practice, or if we just do it you know, when we feel like doing it, and if we don't want, 
if we don't feel like doing it, we don't. Because it's that consistency and, you know, and patient perseverance of, of, of holding still with, with them unpleasant feelings, you know, which mind states can create in our bodies and minds. This is really um, needed, you know. An intellectual understanding is, is not enough. We have to really, you know, after we hear the teaching, after we read about it, we have to bring it home by experiencing it within ourselves. Only then does it have a beneficial effect. Only then, you know, will it uh, be available when we need it in our daily lives, if we have experienced it within ourselves. Because only then do we have, uh, you know, enough faith that it is really helping. Because if you just, you know, believe what somebody else says, uh, when, you know, when the emotions run high, it's not a powerful enough memory within the body and mind. We can't, you know, benefit from it. We have to really see it for ourselves. It has to be, you know, like it says in the teaching, it has to be experienced individually by the wise. Otherwise, it's not, it's not powerful enough to really help us when, when we need it most, you know, when we are under the sway of anger or under the f- sway of jealousy, under the sway of uh, strong greed. So it's really very important, you know, to to bring it back within our own body and mind and see for ourselves what effect it can have. And that gives us this very strong conviction, you know, that we can can then use it in, in times when it's really tough to, to stop ourselves. But if we have have seen for ourselves, then we can do that. Then the, our faith is strong enough and it you know, it, it is on time, basically. It's not too late, not afterwards. But in the moment when we need it. And that's what wisdom is all about. Wisdom is, a very, is, is not a body of knowledge, you know, intellectual knowledge, which we get from books or which we get from a teacher. But it, it's a very active knowing. The word panya and pari. Nya means to know. And pa, the, the prefix, is, is points to what it is a very dynamic way of knowing. You know, which we, here and now, when it's needed, we can just pull it out like an arrow and we can just shoot it into the situation and use it. It's a very active knowing it's a knowing which comes from experience and we know it you know, in, in our whole being and therefore we can use it. We don't have to kind of think, oh, what did I read you know, yesterday? It's already too late. It, it has to be intuitive. It has to be really uh, um, you know, owned and it becomes part of our being. Then, it, then it's quick enough that we can, uh, you know, we can catch ourselves before saying something, we, we later, you know, take hours to repair it. If we can be here and now in that second, you know, we can save ourselves a lot of grief. And in the beginning, you know, we, of course, we are, we are not so fast, but then, you know, use your mindfulness and reflect back, you know, when, how you got drawn into identification, you know, acting on it and then regretting it and the whole process. Don't shy away from really fully looking at it and, and taking in, you know, how it feels. The remorse, the regret, the, the shame, all of those, you know, feelings. And only that can, you know, motivate us to, to do it better the next time. So, you know, this, this uh, wisdom or panya. This, this quality of, of really opening fully to, to what's happening in the present moment, pleasant or unpleasant, and, and then really learn from it by looking deeply and, and not shying away, you know, because it, it feels unpleasant. Nevertheless, it's just looking. 
because you know we can use anything which is happening in our life. We can use it for for cultivating wisdom and compassion. There's nothing outside that uh, scope. You know, everything can be used, and that's the, that's the real good news. You know, because there's nothing whatsoever which which is not practice, which cannot be part of our practice. Nothing. Everything is 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 fuel for wisdom and compassion to arise if we have enough courage and perseverance. You know, and then the rest is just happening by itself because awareness is, is, a, is an agent for wisdom and compassion to arise, mindfulness. We don't have to make that happen because if we really fully and clearly look at a situation and take in the information, then awareness itself will produce wisdom and compassion. You just have to, you know, stay with it and, and not, not shy away from it because it doesn't feel good. Or, or getting lost in it because it feels so good. Or you're not getting bored with it because it just doesn't feel like anything very much. Do you, is there any questions on this? We have like maybe 10 minutes or so, or 15 minutes. Please you know, feel free to ask. I'd like to ask about the um, faculty, if that's the correct word, of awareness. Yes. Um, uh, I wonder what it is. I mean, I've experienced it, but, mm-hmm. but I don't really know what it is, where it resides, mm-hmm. uh, what it does. I mean, it knows, it knows, and, and it doesn't reside anywhere. You, you can't be it by opening to it. But it, you can't, it can't be you know, put into concepts because it's beyond the conceptual mind. But you can touch into it, you know, when I was saying before, just listening to the silence, resting in awareness. That's it. It's not a thing. You know, it's not a thing like, for example, this. I can tell you it's, you know, that long and it is red and it has this weight, it's made out of this or so. It can't be described in that way. It can only be described in what it is not. This is, you know, the Buddhist teaching is often expressing about, you know, awareness in in a way like saying what it is not. It's not a thing. It doesn't have any... It can't be described. It's, It's everywhere. It permeates everything. It's... It's not a thing. And it, you can be it, but you can't know it with the conceptual mind. Does that help? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you know, the best thing is, if you just now you know, close your eyes and, and listen to the space and to the silence... This is a taste, you know, of awareness. And then in the, in the silence, my voice arises or maybe the sound of the train arises or, you know, you feel your body and maybe, the, you know, you feel the wetness in your mouth and the heat in your hands. That's all arising in awareness and ceasing in awareness. It's... And one, and you know, and one quality of awareness is knowing. When you say one quality is knowing, mm-hmm. are are there then other qualities of it that 
I mean, you know, the, the, this kind of the aliveness of it, the fullness of it. Because, you know, and some people, one can, can hear, you can hear, some people hear what they call the sound of silence. Arjun Sumedha, our teacher, he was teaching that, you know, listening to the sound of silence or feeling a certain vibration. But this is different, you know, qualities of awareness. Which, you know, which is, it is not necessary uh, to, to feel or hear that. But awareness just is. And everything arises and ceases in awareness. You know, we are all in awareness, basically. And this is, you know, something through repetition of uh, in the meditation. It is, is, a, is a recognition which will, you know, which, which tends to dawn on you. You know what I mean? You hear it for the first time and then you, and then you repeat it and you repeat it and you repeat it you know, in the meditation by just opening to it. And you know, it's, it, it will arise, you know, it will slowly, slowly arise. Like the, when, when the sun is rising, you know, once it's starting, it's going to not stop rising, you know. But it, you have to just keep going with it. Because it, it can't be, you know, I can't, it can't be given by anybody to somebody else. But it, it's the fruit of practice, you know, through uh, repetition of, of paying attention. It becomes clearer and clearer. Does that make sense to you? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yes, the gentleman has another question. Mm-hmm. Kind of a follow-up. Uh, yes. Is enlightenment then a quality of awareness? I think, you know, enlightenment is... It, I mean, I'm not enlightened myself, so I can only, you know, extrapolate from what I have read and heard. But uh, I think enlightenment is is the ability to to constantly rest in in awareness and 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 not being identified with any of the arisings within awareness. You know, for example, resting in awareness and then. Uh, a strong pain arises or a, a strong sensation or something arises and, you know, the untrained uh, person would just immediately, you know, a kind of contract around the arising and identify with it, you know, because of uh, the afflictive emotions, you know, and the, uh, because of the underlying tendencies which have not been yet cleared out in an unenlightened being. But whereas an enlightened being, all of the underlying tendencies of greed, hatred and delusion have been, you know, let go of. And so there might be still, you know, if a car comes by and it makes a loud sound, still an enlightened person would still also, you know, kind of see or listen out to that sound and take appropriate action, but wouldn't be kind of upset by that. And then hold on to that, and 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 you know, be full of uh, fear and 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 you know, shock and trauma about what's arising. Do you understand what I mean? Because the underlying tendencies of of uh, understanding oneself as a separate entity in a hostile universe has completely let go of. You know, which is for us still all here, and it's called underlying tendencies because if there are some triggers, you know, they, they come up and they flow out, and and then you know, we tend to do things, you know, which uh, if we would have very sharp mindfulness, we wouldn't do because those tendencies can very quickly, you know, flare up and it can be very fast, and we can't catch ourselves. But for an enlightened being, you know, that would be all cleared out. It would not would, would not arise. 
So there would be this equanimity there, you know. And because of this equanimity, we'd be able to much better actually act in the face of whatever is happening, you know. We can help other people much more because we equanimous and don't get, don't get carried away. And so it's a, it's a very... It's, it's when the mind is so big, you know, and without any boundaries that it, it can respond fully. Does it make some sense? Mm-hmm. Um, would it be accurate, do you think, or useful to think of awareness as that, that we can choose different ways of being aware? Like, one way would be a, a very wide awareness of maybe anything or everything that's going on around us. Um, and then there's we could choose alternatively to have a more narrow awareness, like focusing just on our breath and letting go of everything else. Sure, I mean, I think both is, is good. You know, in the beginning of the session, I would always think it's a good way to just, you know, focus onto a sensation and, and bring, you know, bring the mind into the body and, uh, you know, settling and calming. And and then you know when when the when the body and the mind are reasonably calm, then to open up afterwards, you know. Mm-hmm. But I think, for example, you know, like in in, it depends also what you're doing in in your daily life. You know, if you're driving a car, I think it's really good, you know, to be focused onto the onto the road, onto the what you're doing in the car. But it, I think it's, it depends on circumstances. You know what what is the what is what is required in order to be able to to do what you're doing but, in the present. But either way, we're just being aware. But yeah. we're choosing how to be aware. That- no, I mean I think choosing the appropriate you know uh, way of going about things in the present moment, whatever is is needed. I think. I, for example, you know, if you are walking on the street, you know, it wouldn't be good to just be focused on the, the soles uh, touching the ground. You know, it'd be much better if you have the, the whole street in, in your awareness and what's going on around you. It'd be dangerous if you just focused on your body, for example. So I think, you know, really focusing onto a very narrow point is just a way of training the mind, you know. But I think in daily life it's mostly not not the best way of going about things. Only, you know, if you put if you do some very, very finicky little work, it's it's a good thing to be able to really focus on the small point. But mostly in daily life I don't think so that it is very helpful. Because we always you know, we always in company most of the time there's always other people and there's lots of things going on around us. It's it's a bigger take on awareness is much more helpful, I feel. But it's but it's you know, it makes the mind strong, you know, to focus on a very little point for some time and then open up to have different ways of training the mind. It's like when you go to a gym, you know, if you only use one machine, then your body will get kind of strange, you know, after twenty years. But if you use different machines, you you, you use different you train all areas, and then you'll have a well-rounded, well-trained body, and the mind is the same. You know, if you just do one thing all the time, I think it's, it's not so good. Mm. I think we have to stop now. But maybe one more, yeah. Maybe I ask you about this, because I have one big... No, it's okay, if you'd like to. One more. Well, actually... I'm new to all this, and my questions actually has not so much related to what you just said, but has question to do with being a Buddhist and Buddhism in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, my impression is it seems that you know all this practice is done in isolation. It seems that there is um, inclination for people not to be involved in this world. 
you know, very seriously involved. Mm-hmm. And but you know, living kind of detached from the world. Am I right? No, I don't. You know, I think it it looks like it. You know, and in the beginning, it certainly is like that. Because I think when we start to meditate, it's it's quite good. You know, to to have like a controlled environment, you know, to meditate, to learn to meditate and to, to start to understand certain basic functioning of the mind because in the beginning we need to withdraw a little bit to be able to see it. But then, you know, the real proof of the practice lies what we bring, that we bring it back into the world, definitely. This is like, you know, when you're going to learn to drive a car, you know, in the beginning... You have to be totally focused on driving the car. You couldn't imagine that later on you might be listening to the radio, eat something and drive at the same time. No problem, you know, after five years. Even you shouldn't do it because the police doesn't like it if you eat and drive. But I just mean, you know, when you, or when you learn to, to play the piano, in the beginning you think you'd never be able to, to play a sonata or something. But then if you train, you know, long enough, it becomes second nature. And then you can, you can do things you thought you'd never be able to do. And meditation is just the same. It's like learning an instrument, you know. In the beginning, you need a bit of, you know, controlled environment and be maybe a bit focused really onto yourself. But then, if you start to develop certain insights and wisdom and compassion to a degree, you know, then you, you bring it into your life. You bring it out into the world and... And that's why we are doing it, you know. But I think, you know, in the beginning it's just there's a phase where, where we need to really be focused on ourselves for some time. But then and, and we, we need a teacher maybe, you know, to point that out because some people might misunderstand it or get really hung up on, on the bliss of concentration, for example. You know, that's when we need somebody to help us to get out of it, because that's an, an, a hindrance, you know. So we need a little bit of guidance, probably, most people, you know. Yeah. Every teacher, I think, would, would see that meditation is not a, a means in, or an end in itself, but it's a means, you know, to become a, a more compassionate and wise being and bring it into the world. Yeah. Thank you. Mm. Yeah. So I think I'm going to stop now.